We're back in the book of 1 Corinthians. Once again this morning, continuing our series. So please, let's turn together to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, last week, from chapter 2, we saw Paul lay out a clear contrast between the Holy Spirit and the natural spirit of this world, between the secret and hidden wisdom of the gospel and the wisdom of this age which is doomed to pass away. After laying this out theologically, doctrinally, now here beginning in chapter 3 verse 1, he turns to directly apply this doctrine to the life of the church. That's why I've entitled this message, Applying the Wisdom of the Cross to the Church. 1 Corinthians 3, 1-9. Remember, brethren, this is not the word of man. This is the word of God. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Even now you are... Not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray again. Father, we do pray, Lord, that you would by your grace, help us to hear with faith. We pray that you would feed us the solid food of your word. We pray that you would give us the bread of life, which we know is the Lord Jesus Christ, that it would nourish our bodies. We pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your gospel. We pray, Lord, through the name of Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer. Amen. Have you ever gotten into an argument with a know-it-all? <clears throat> Someone who's convinced they have all the right answers? Someone who constantly, consistently postures themselves as being intellectually and or spiritually superior to you? Someone who can't at all see their own ignorance? If you've been there before, you probably know it's kind of like arguing with a toddler. Uh, think of like the two or three-year-old you've seen on the playground before. Just old enough to kind of go their own way and do their own thing, but young enough to entirely, be entirely ignorant to their limitations. You know, you, maybe you've seen the parent say, hey, um, this child to, go, to the child, hey, it's time to go home. And the child maybe runs off the other way as if they can outrun the parent. Or maybe the child physically resists or even fights the parent who's three times their size. 
Well, I think this gives us a little bit of a picture of what Paul is dealing with here in 1 Corinthians. I say this because he addresses them here as infants, as toddlers, spiritually speaking. And you need to know, this is not him being cute. This is not him joking around. This is a scathing rebuke. It's an insult in many respects. He is not beating around the bush and pointing out how childish their behavior truly is. And he's not doing so because the worst part about it is that there's no excuse for their condition. That's why I liken it to being a know-it-all. You know, two or three-year-old acts like a toddler. We can kind of understand and sympathize with that a little bit. They're just small children. But what about when adults act like toddlers? What about when you're confronted with that know-it-all who thinks they know it all, but in reality they are so incredibly blind to their own faults, to their own limitations? That's shameful. That's embarrassing. And that's the situation going on in Corinth here. Paul is being intentionally sharp with them here and calling them infants because they prided themselves on their supposed maturity. But you need to know, he doesn't call them infants simply because they were young and immature. They were toddlers because they were actually grown-up know-it-alls who had turned away from the centrality of the cross and turned away from the only place where maturity and wisdom is found. So the question might be then, how do you confront a know-it-all? What do you say? And, And how do you reason with them? Well, here we find that Paul calls them to wake up to the true reality of their condition. And he points them back, of course, as we've seen again and again, not to themselves. He doesn't bring the law. He doesn't say, obey or else. He does, as he's done all throughout so far, given all the problems in Corinth, whether it's sexual immorality, or whether it's abusing the Lord's table, or abusing spiritual gifts, or suing one another, he points them back not to do this and live. He points them back to God. Again and again and again. He says, your eyes have moved off from the one thing central, Christ and Him crucified. That's where true wisdom is found. That's what it means to have the mind of Christ. If they were to grow, if they were to change, if they were to mature, it's only to be found in this God-centered message of the cross worked out in their lives and in their church. That's the only thing that will bring it about. And so today, maybe you're here and you're thinking, well, I don't really think this applies to me, hopefully. I don't see myself as a know-it-all. I certainly maybe don't see myself as a toddler in the faith. But this passage is incredibly relevant because we all fall into these things from time to time. What is the evidence right here for being a toddler in the faith? He says it. it jealousy? Strife? Disorder? Living or reasoning according to the flesh, self-focus, self-sufficiency, boasting or glorying in people or personalities, improperly exalting leaders in the church, misunderstanding the nature of ministry in the church, or maybe even devaluing leaders and ministers in the church. 
These are the things, these are the evidence of a church or a Christian moving away from the mind of Christ, moving away from the centrality of the cross and acting like ignorant children. Brethren, we're all prone to fall into these things from time to time. We never move beyond this state where such things or inclinations might tempt us. And so today, we too need to hear, again, the wisdom of the cross and Christ and Him crucified applied to our churches so that Christ is the center of our hearts, of our homes, and of our churches. To break this down, uh, two points today, just two. I want to point you to how we see the mind of the flesh exposed and the mind of Christ revealed. Real simple. The mind of the flesh exposed and the mind of Christ revealed. We need to see Paul expose the mind of the flesh here in verses 1 through 4. And as we think about this, remember, Paul is making application of what he just said in this last big section there in chapter 2. If you recall, what did we see the last few weeks? We saw that true wisdom in the Christian life, true maturity in the Christian life, is found in the message of the cross applied to the heart by the Holy Spirit, leading to us living in light of, resulting in having the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. And so here, after displaying that in the end of chapter 2, here he turns to show how the Corinthians were behaving so contrary to that. They think they are mature. They think they are super spiritual. They think they are great Christians. But they are divided, which shows their immaturity. They think that they are spiritual. But they're behaving like those who don't have the Holy Spirit. And so he says in verse 1, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. The term spiritual, when he uses this spiritual people, it points back to chapter 2, remember, and it points back to those characterized by the indwelling Holy Spirit, those who have the mind of Christ. And how did we end last week? What is the mind of Christ? Do you remember? The mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is demonstrated in humility. Philippians chapter 2. Love, service, submissive spirit, giving preference to others. All of the virtues that Jesus Christ displayed as He submitted to the will of the Father, as He entrusted all things into into His Father's hands, and He walked away to the cross. That's the mind of Christ. It's not in answering all the wisdom and questions and theology, philosophy of this world. The mind of Christ is in humility and loving other people and submitting to the Word of God. And so Paul says here, I can't address you as these types of people. I can only address you as people of the flesh, infants in Christ. I can't address you as those who know and understand that the gospel is the center of life. Because you're like, Christ and Him crucified, that's great. Let's go off into bigger and better things. I can't address you as people who know that love and unity and peace and humility lie at the heart of everything in the Christian life. 
You're just stuck, stuck on standing up for your own rights and getting your own way. I can't address you as people who know the important things about the gospel, the central things about the gospel. Instead, you're characterized by the flesh. So the idea of the flesh here, it refers to those who are characterized not by the Holy Spirit, but rather by the human and sinful ways of living and evaluating the world around us. And you've thought a lot about this in recent weeks as well. A Christian is someone who lives for the age to come. That's an indelible mark of a Christian. They evaluate everything in life on the basis of the age to come. They live not for now, but for later. And the mark of an unbeliever is obviously the opposite. They live for what they can get out of this life right now. The Christian then evaluates all things on the basis of the age to come. The Christian sees Christ and Him crucified and, and the obedience and love and service and humility that flow out of this as our example and the basis for all of our conduct and behavior. So to be in the flesh means self-sufficiency, self-reliance, self-focus, earthly focus, worldly focus. Again, standing up for our own rights, going our own way, doing our own thing, fighting for our own preferences. And this is what had led to this turmoil here in Corinth. They had this emphasis on social status in the church and petty rivalries and personal giftedness and worldly rhetoric. Now, we need to be careful here. Paul, don't think that Paul is saying that they don't have the Holy Spirit. Up in 2.14, Paul said the natural person does not accept the things of God. Um, that's a different term, natural person. And Paul intentionally changes that here. Instead, he calls them people of the flesh. He even says that they're infants in Christ. They are in Christ. They're not outside of Christ. The point is not that they don't have the Holy Spirit. The problem is, is that they do have the Holy Spirit, but they're not living and acting like it. They're walking not according to the Spirit, but according to the flesh. They think they are super spiritual, but they are acting like those who are devoid of the Holy Spirit. So Paul isn't saying here, you need to grow up and mature. He's rather saying, you are mature. That's your spiritual status. That's who you are in Christ, but it's pathetic how you're behaving like toddlers, like the immature. And we don't rebuke a toddler for being a toddler in the same way that we would rebuke an adult for being a toddler. One just needs to grow up, while the other needs to wake up to the reality of their true condition and that they are living and acting inconsistent with their adulthood. And that's what Paul is saying here. I'm having to address you as toddlers, not as adults, because that's how you are just insistent on behaving. What he means is further seen here in verse 2. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. Again, we need to be careful not to misunderstand here. 
Paul is not saying that he fed them with milk as if his teaching and preaching were simple and basic. And he's not saying that, well, when you grow up, I'm going to give you better food. Right? I'm going to give you simple things, and then when you grow up, I'll give you deeper wisdom and greater, greater help and greater doctrine. That's not his point at all. What he's doing is he's picking up on their accusation that the message of the cross is milk. That it's simple, that it's basic. And he's picking up on their opinion that they need to move on to bigger and better things. Deeper wisdom. I mean, don't we know that's the problem? They were fascinated with what they thought was solid food. The wisdom of this world. The rhetoric of this world. And Paul is saying, you're so in love with these things, you can't even stomach milk. The pure milk of the gospel. So the point is not simply that they need to grow from simple teaching to deeper teaching. They need to abandon their childish behavior so that they can appreciate the milk for what it truly is. Solid food. As one theologian put it, they don't need a change in diet. They need a change in perspective. As John Calvin said here, Jesus Christ is both milk for babes and strong meat for men. Brethren, that should resonate with us. I hope it resonates with you a little bit. It should cause us to ask, do we trust the Lord to tell us what we really need for spiritual growth and sustenance? Are we satisfied with the simple, ordinary, regular means of grace? The simple, straightforward preaching and teaching of God's Word, corporate worship, prayer, fellowship, and the Lord's Supper. Does that feed us? Or do we think we need something more? Have we realized that the difference between milk and solid food simply comes down to how well we understand and grasp Christ and Him crucified as the basis for everything else in life and doctrine. Christ in Him crucified is the milk that nourishes babes in Christ. Christ in Him crucified is the strong, is the solid food for the strong man that nourishes and sustains as well those in Christ when we work out the implications into all of life. That's what the Corinthians hadn't learned yet. That's what so many of us from time to time fail to learn as well. How little we think of the gospel at times. Right? How quickly we say we move from Christ and Him crucified to bigger and better things that we think that we need. How little we think of of worship sometimes and the corporate worship on the Lord's Day. How infrequently we, we intentionally stop and try to work out the gospel into every area of life. Applying the gospel to whatever problem, whatever disagreement, whatever issue, whatever sin, whatever discouragement, whatever circumstance that you're faced with in life. It's a message we often need to hear as well. Paul concludes this thought really in 
verse 3, when he drives it home and he says, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Your childishness is revealed in jealousy, which is the root of it is self-centeredness. What you think you deserve. Whether that be status or recognition or gifts or esteem or honor, and you're not happy when other people have it. So it creates division. Strife, disagreement, conflict. One person is angry. They haven't gotten their way or they're bitter. Paul is saying you're, you're acting in a human way. The Holy Spirit brings love and peace and kindness and oneness. And the mind of Christ leads to humility and service and putting the interests of others ahead of ourselves. And so true spirituality, true maturity makes people peaceable. When there's strife or disagreement, you're behaving in a human way, walking according to the old man, the old world. And this is Paul exposing their behavior for what it truly is. Wake up to the seriousness of your sin and ignorance. Stop thinking like people of the present age. Stop living like the spiritually dead of this present age. This is the mind of the flesh exposed. Secondly, we then see the mind of Christ revealed. Paul's going to go on and apply this to a number of different things in the church, but for our purposes in section today, we're just going to see, see it applied really uh, to the leadership in the ministry of the church. But the mind of the Christ revealed. The mind of the Christ revealed. The problem in Corinth wasn't just their strife and quarreling, but they also had a wrong uh, understanding of the church. They had a wrong perception of leaders in the church and a, long, a, a wrong mis, uh, understanding of the ministry of the church. And, and that's what Paul turns to here. He wants to apply this to the ministry and, and leaders in the church. And without being too simplistic, it, it's really clear he puts the emphasis on God. It's really obvious if you read it in the original language. Um, but he, he pulls him to a, points him to a, 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 an emphatic God-centered perspective here. And, and so... Not to give you another outline. I hate it when preachers do that. There's just two points today, but there's actually like eight. Um, not to give you another outline, but if you did want another outline, in this last section, we see God's servants, God's work, and God's building. He, he points them to God in this last section as he reveals the mind of Christ in the church. Turns them away from themselves and on to God. And he says in verse 5, what then is Apollos, what is Paul, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each? Don't you see that ministers in the church are God's servants? The Corinthians were boasting in their leaders. They were splitting over their favorite personalities and preachers. They were taking pride in mere men. And Paul is saying this misses the entire point of Christian ministry. Ministers, pastors, officers, preachers, they are servants. Uh, literally, the, ref the word here refers to somebody who waits tables. Waits tables. 
It's the same word, it's the word deacon. Uh, we know, of course, that the word can take up special meaning when it refers to the office of a deacon, but it shows the overlap between the work of a pastor and the work of a deacon. At the heart of it, they are both just mere servants. They're waiters. Also noteworthy in this is Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? He doesn't say who, which would be the expected way of saying that. Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? The what points us away from the who. The what points us away from the person and onto their task, their role, their function, which is a servant. It's like they don't even need a name. They're the butler, in a sense. You don't call the butler by name. Well, you do call a pastor by name. You can call me by name. But in the sense, you get what I'm saying. He's directing their focus to the task, not to the person. It was, it was the Corinthians. They were obsessed with those questions of, who's your favorite preacher? Who's your favorite personality? Who's your fa- favorite communicator? Who's your favorite theologian? Who's your favorite leader in our church? I'm not saying you can't have, you know, you ask me, I'll tell you my favorite preacher. I'm not saying you can't have that. But they were obsessed with the who in a way that was dividing one another. So Paul calls him to focus on the what. The what is that, that ministers in Christ's church are servants. Servants. To focus on the man, to focus on the personality, is to behave in a human way. And yet, although they are servants on one hand, they're also instruments through whom they came to believe. They are servants, but the Lord uses servants to accomplish His desires. In fact, the Lord could have not used ministers and pastors. But He chose, He's pleased to use them as instruments to bring people to the faith through whom you believed. The Lord granted you belief through this servant. As the Lord assigned to each, the Lord assigns ministers. Ministers do not appoint themselves. The Lord is the focus. The Lord is, it is His assigning and it is His granting of belief that is the focus here. So they are both servants of God and they are used of God, used by God, and the emphasis is on God, His will, His purposes, His servants. You've missed a boat here, guys, by focusing on personalities and pastors. God's servants, but then in verse 6, we see God's work. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Paul came and evangelized the city and planted the church. Apollos then came and watered. He ministered among them to build them up. But all along, who is it that's doing the work? Ultimately, who's giving the growth? It's God. He uses a variety of different ministers that's Ministers are different in, are gifted in different ways. And I mean, this is obvious on the face of it. We don't know for sure, but we could guess. You know, either Paul or Apollos, one of them was a better preacher. Either Paul or Apollos, one of them was, was probably better gifted at discipling or counseling than the other. Right? There's a diversity of gifts. There's a diversity of personalities. The point is that 
They all work in conjunction towards the same goal, but it is the Lord ultimately, whether He calls Paul to plant a church or He calls Apollos to come then alongside him, uh, maybe an associate ministry or a lay ministry, the point is God calls the men to office, God gifts them with what He wants to give them, and God uses them as His instruments to bring about the growth because God Himself is the one who causes the growth. God creates the church by His Word and His Spirit. God is the one who grants spiritual growth. And so, the Corinthians were placing too high of an emphasis on human leaders, and they misunderstood where growth comes from. You see what I say? This saves us from having too high a view of ministers. They are servants. Right? Supposing that the person or the personality or the giftedness makes the church. But it also saves us from having a too low view of ministry ministers as if we don't need them or as if their particular giftedness doesn't matter at all. It saves us from those things. And, it, and it's the mind of Christ applied to the church as well. And I hope you see, it's very relevant in our day. We live in a day where there's an obsession with celebrity pastors. Leaders who are obsessed with making a name for themselves, furthering their own agenda. Uh, we read it from the reading of the law earlier, where ministers lord over the church, like their CEOs. And Jesus says, you're not to, you're not to lord over things like the Gentiles do. True leadership is servant leadership. Don't we see as well, even at times, local pastors despised or ignored or seen as irrelevant, even in their own congregations, because all the access to media that we have. And we think, well, my true spiritual growth comes from my quiet time. My true spiritual growth comes from my favorite preacher podcasts. Brother, we see these things all around us, in our, and it's worldly, it's childish. It's immature. God gives the growth. God raises the men. God gathers the people under them. And we're to lift our eyes to His work ultimately and know that's where growth and maturity is found. Paul then concludes this thought in verse 7, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. The question of verse 5, what then is Paul? What then is Apollos? What then is R.C. Sproul? What then is Sinclair Ferguson? What then is Alistair Begg? What then is John MacArthur? What then is your favorite childhood pastor? What then is the pastor that led you to Christ? What then is Nathan White? The one who plants and the one who waters is nothing. They aren't anything, Paul says, in the grand scheme of things. They aren't anything in comparison to what's really going on and that God gives the growth. Ultimately, you cannot credit a minister 
for your growth, ultimately. Now you can say the Lord used, used you, used this, this person to grow you, but ultimately it is the Lord who grants it. And, and at the same time, I think that you cannot ultimately blame a minister for your lack of growth as long as they are faithful to plant and water. We're called to look higher. And the analogy is very simple. You can go out and plant a seed all day long and you can water it all day long. But if if the soil isn't right, if the nutrients aren't right, if the sunshine isn't right, if God the Creator doesn't grant it growth, it's not going to grow. So the, 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 the message here is stop arguing over personalities. Look higher. Direct your gaze to God. Look to the first cause. Don't look to ministers as if everything depends upon them. Your growth is God's work. And he brings this to a conclusion in verses 8 and 9 where we also see that this is God's building. The church is God's building. He says in verse 8, He who plants and he who waters are one. That means they accomplish and pursue the same goal together. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. We work alongside with God. You are God's field, God's building. To wrap up this thought, uh, Paul places the emphasis on the oneness and unity of ministers and their work in the church. Those who plant and those who water are one. There's a variety of different gifts. There's a variety of different ministers, but they all serve the one common goal in God's one common body, building, field. So when the Spirit is at work, the mind of Christ is present, there will be unity and harmony and oneness in the church, in her work, and among the ministers. And this anticipates what Paul will later go to in chapter 12 through 14 when he talks about spiritual gifts. There's to be no competition there between gifts, right? I'm a hand, I'm not an eye, I'm a foot, I'm not a more prominent member, I'm an unmentionable, what good is, uh, what good am I? Oh, this person is greater than me. Well, if they all serve, they're all vital parts of the body, they all serve uh, the goal of building up, the call then is away from self-interest and self-focus and self-fulfillment. They're not in competition with one another. Ministers aren't, and the church members aren't. And the key to this all is really found in this phrase, each one will receive his wages according to his labor. Brethren, don't miss that. This is so countercultural in our day. There's a reward for serving the Lord. It's not according to a minister's success. Or even your success. It's not according to results. It's not according to how many converts, how many baptisms, how big the budget, how big the building, how many missionaries you send out, how many books you've published, how many sermons have been downloaded. God rewards according to labor. Because they are His servants and they are doing His work and they are in his, serving His building. And so given that, what should ministers strive for? It gives us the key to what we should all strive for. Simply to be found faithful. To be faithful. That's the question you need to walk away with this morning. 
Am I faithful to where the Lord has placed me? Am I faithful with the gifts God has given me? Am I faithful to what He's entrusted to me? Because it all comes from Him, and He is ultimately in control of the outcome. He's in control. That's why there can be no rivalry in the church or division. There can be no personality cults or focus on worldly wisdom and rhetoric. To do so is to tear down, to try and tear down what God in Christ is building. And so brethren, as we bring this to a conclusion this morning, I want to think about, again, we began by considering what's it like to argue with a toddler or a know-it-all. And brethren, again, this passage gives us insight into some of those own tendencies in our hearts and lives from time to time. But the message that Paul brings and the message of the Gospel is if you are in Christ, you have everything you need for life and godliness. Whether we're talking about on an individual level or whether we're talking about as the gathered church and her ministers. We have everything that we need for life and godliness. Our call then is to to know and receive what it is that leads to true growth and maturity. God-centeredness in all things. Christ and Him crucified as the pattern and the structure and the example and the hope of all things. We heard it from the reading of the law earlier. There is no greater, no one greater in the kingdom of heaven than a servant. Jesus Christ, there is no greater servant than the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no greater servant in the Lord's house than the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no greater minister than the Lord Jesus Christ. And knowing and seeing this is what opens the door not only for our service as well, but also for our hope too, for this service to be worked in us that we might walk in obedience to it. Because every single week, we come together and what do we do? We hear the Gospel. And we might sing and pray the Gospel. And we might see and observe the Gospel in the Lord's Supper. It is through those simple and ordinary things, things that from time to time, they don't wow us. From time to time, we can fall into seeing them as boring, not in that ultimate sense, but in like, well, tell me something I don't know. Things that from time to time we think we need more. We need more throughout the week. We need more of this. We need more of this. We need more of this. But God says in Christ, this is the food that truly nourishes you and builds you up. Because it's Christ's obedience for you, but also through the gospel and hearing and receive it, is Christ's obedience work in you as well. So that you might serve the Lord in His church and bring glory to His matchless name. So brother, let us see the mind of Christ, excuse me, the mind of the flesh exposed so that we're not an ignorant toddler walking around as a know-it-all, missing where true humil- uh, maturity is found in humility and service and love. But let's also see the mind of Christ revealed, the God-centeredness and cross-centeredness, which is our hope, which is the means by which we are nourished, and we too walk just according to He as He walked. 
May God give us the grace to receive these things this morning. Amen.